0: the word together. So please take your Bible and stand with me. And we're going to be reading from 1 Thessalonians, chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. And if you're using one of the black Bibles from the back, that's page 986, if that helps you. So again, we're in 1 Thessalonians, chapter 2, starting at verse 1. And remember, we are reading God's word. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct towards you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children... We exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Thank you. You may be seated.
1: All right, so Matthew uh, mentioned earlier that uh, a big theme of this uh, idea of 1 1 Thessalonians is the coming of Jesus. We've titled the series In Light of His Coming, the idea being that Jesus could return at any moment. Uh, We believe that that's true. We would love for Jesus to return at any moment. Uh, That would be good news uh, for those of us who are in Christ. Um, We also uh, know that the scripture teaches repeatedly that the, the New Testament believers expected that Jesus could return. At any moment, and then that reshaped and recalibrated how they lived and how they thought and what they did. And so uh, we felt like this would be a good way to finish. Uh, 2011 would be to look at it and go, "What would it look like if we were to live in light of His coming?" In fact, every uh, chapter of this book of First Thessalonians has a reference to uh, the coming of Jesus Christ. So take a look at uh, verse uh, chapter one, verse 10. It talks about uh, that we're here to wait uh, for his Son from heaven. If you look at uh, chapter 2, verse 19, uh, it talks about before our Lord Jesus at his coming. If you go to chapter 3, verse 13, it says uh, the Lord wants us to increase and abound in love so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Uh, Chapter 4, verse 15 Uh, says, for this we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Uh, And in verse 16, it says, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command. Uh, Chapter 5, verse 2 says that the day of the Lord, that's reference always in scripture to the return of, of Christ, that day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. And a thief in the night comes when you don't expect it. Uh, you don't know when it's going to be. No matter how many people try to predict things and whatever, you just don't know. And verse 3 says, While people are saying there's peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them uh, as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman. That this this initial return of Jesus will be shocking. It will be incredible. And then chapter 5, verse 23 um says, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So this is a, a big idea here. We didn't just make up, oh, this would be a neat title. Uh, this just comes right out of these pages of scripture. And in light of that, uh, we should live differently. We should live uh, ready to make our lives count so that at any moment when Jesus returns, we may be found, as it said in one of those passages, blameless that is coming. Blameless, by the way, does not mean sinless. It just means there's no sin there that, that we're holding on to and, and nurturing, but, but every sin that comes into our life that we commit, that we do, we, we deal with quickly, we repent quickly. We're to live differently, and so we looked last week in chapter 1. At the change that had uh, come about the, in the lives of these Thessalonians, the Apostle Paul had encouraged these people um, about the love and the, the faith and the hope that he had seen in them. If you look back to chapter one, verse three, or sorry, sorry verse two, he says, "We give thanks to God always for you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord." Jesus Christ. This is what was commendable, was their their love and their faith and their hope. And so one of the questions we would have to look at is to say, okay, if, if the life that will be ready to meet Jesus is a life of faith and love and hope, then how are we to encourage one another, to help one another, to live lives like that? What is it that we can do here And now, day in, day out, not just on Sundays, but but all the time, in all the different relationships that God has put us in, how can we help others and how can we be helped to live lives of faith, hope, and love? Well, that's what we're going to look at today in chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. It's really kind of a case study, if you will, of uh, how Paul did it. Uh, the kind of uh, ministry that Paul had that produced this sort of thing in these Thessalonians. And uh, it's interesting because the point of Paul writing this passage is really to just sort of remind them of what he did. And and actually, the whole first three chapters are just his kind of introduction saying, gosh, I really love you guys. You're really something. Don't you remember all these sweet times we had? I mean, he's just remembering all these things. But if we look at it, we see that it really provides a great case study For what some might call personal ministry. Now, there's a good chance a lot of you here, you hear the word ministry, you go, ministry? Is that like some sort sort of James Bond, like the ministry of, what are we talking about? Ministry. Ministry is that idea of serving one another. And specifically, when we speak about personal ministry, what we're talking about is life on life relationships, the prayerful speaking of God's word into another person's life in a way that helps them grow in a way that helps nurture in them faith, love, and hope. That's what personal ministry is. So uh, this is an incredibly important thing because the Scripture says that all of God's people are called to be ministers. Now you go, well, I'm not a minister. I don't wear a collar. I don't uh, have a microphone on my face right now. I'm not a minister. No, no, no. The scripture says that God gives leaders in the church, uh, pastors and shepherds and evangelists and prophets and apostles and teachers, he, he gives all those things in order to equip everybody in the, in the church for the work of ministry. And the work of ministry is not primarily about having your name on a roster, It's not primarily about volunteering in a specific place. It's about being sent as one of God's messengers to the people that are in your life with good, true, gracious, encouraging words from God that will build in them faith, hope, and love. These principles that we're going to talk about today are incredibly important if you want to avoid being a fraud. Right, I mean, I, I would say authenticity is something that everybody in our day and age strives for. We we want to be authentic. We want the the person that people see publicly to be the person we actually are. We want to be privately what we pretend to be publicly. And if you uh, apply these principles, y- y- you'll you'll be a true authentic person as you care for one another. These principles today that we'll talk about will also help you tremendously in the task of being a parent. Or a grandparent. So how many of you would fit in that category? You're a parent or a grandparent? Okay, so that's majority of you. Not everybody, but that's a lot of you today. Um, if you don't get what we talk about today, it will be very, very difficult for you to fulfill the role that God has given you as a parent. This is incredibly important. uh, These principles we're going to talk about today will also help you to have a positive impact, a positive influence for Jesus Christ on the people that you care about the most, the friends and the family and the neighbors and the people, the the, the uncle and the daughter and the daughter-in-law that you just so much are praying for that God would work in their life. If you will apply the things that we talk about today, God will actually allow you perhaps to be the means of grace in their lives. This is an incredibly important idea, and it's an important idea for our church. Our church continues to grow. I don't know if you noticed that. I mean, how many of you come in here, you know, those of you that have been around a while, and you know, and you come in and you go, who are all these people? Right? A lot of people ask me that. Who are, where are all these people come from? And I'm like, I don't know. I mean, I don't know everyone. I'd love to know everybody, and I probably know more people than anyone else in our church. I would, I would... I would go to bat and say I know more people. But I still don't know everyone, and even the people I know I don't know really well. And so if the ministry of our church can only go, if it's dependent on how much personal care that I can provide, and I know the most people, ooh, we're in trouble. If If the care and the development of our church is totally dependent on how much personal love and shepherding... An investment our elders and pastors and leaders can make, we're in trouble. See, our, our church, the ability for all of us to grow together into the image of Christ and the way that he's made us, is dependent on these principles. These things that we're going to see today, if we will model these, not only will they help you as a parent, not only will they help you in the ways that you, just to influence and impact the people you care about, but they will help us actually be the kind of church that God's calling us to be. So uh, that's, I think, a pretty big deal. Now, it's pretty easy to follow in this passage uh, the, the, the principles here. The big idea is this, is that personal ministry, this just ability to care for one another, um, at its best, it involves a pure message, pure motives, and pure methods. Pure message, pure motives, and pure methods. Now, we're not going to go exactly verse by verse here because um, these three ideas are sort of interwoven throughout this entire text. Uh, But what we want to look at first is this idea of a pure message. Paul has come to these Thessalonians, and there's something he said to them. There's a message that has gripped their hearts and has transformed them in such a way that they have received it and responded in faith, hope, and love. What is that message? Well, he references it Uh, through this passage in verse 2, verse 3, verse 8, and verse 9. Do you see what that is? The message is the gospel. He says in verse 2, We had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. In verse 3, he says, or I'm sorry, verse 4, he says, uh, Just as we had been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel So we speak, not to please men, but to please God. In verse 8, he says, so being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves. In verse 9, you remember, brothers, our our labor and toil, we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to you, while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. So the message that Paul had was the gospel of God. Of God. Now, if you're, if you're newer to, to this whole idea of church and the Bible and, and Scripture, then this idea of gospel is probably something you've heard of. Maybe, in fact, when you hear the word gospel, you think, oh, that must be Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Those are the books. Maybe Paul just went in and read the books of the Bible. Well, the books of the Bible hadn't been written yet at this point. But Paul still had a message, this message called the gospel, this good news. That's what the word gospel means, good news news and i think it's incredibly important to see that the gospel is news not advice we say this a lot around here because it's so uh, people get so confused about it the gospel is news it's about something that has happened it's not about something that you should then go do it's about something that is done not something you should do you get that it's news not advice. So when most people hear uh, a Christian say, hey, you should believe in the gospel. You should become a Christian. What they think, here's, here's what you think if you're here and you're, and you're not yet a, a follower of Jesus. You tend to think that that person is inviting you to do some religious stuff. They're inviting you to be religious. They're inviting you to be moral. Moral. And depending on your background, that may or may not be interesting to you. That may or may not be compelling to you. But that's not the gospel. The gospel is not advice. It's news. It's news that something amazing has happened. And specifically, it's news that God has sent his son Jesus into the world to live a perfect life. To die on the cross as a substitute for sinners so that he could reconcile to himself and renew everything that had been broken by sin. That's the gospel. That's what it is. And that was Paul's message, this gospel of God, this good news of God. But I want to spend some time on this because we very often confuse the gospel with moralism. Or we confuse the gospel with religion. And so I want to put some things on the screen and just take a little time here to make sure we understand the message. We're not going to help each other at all if we walk around just giving a bunch of advice. We're not going to help each other at all. You're not going to be a good parent if all you do is teach your kid to be moral. You might be a good parent by the world's standards. You're not going to be a godly parent. So this is an important thing. What's the difference between the gospel and religion? Well, Tim Keller has helped us a bunch here in some of this. And so uh, here's five points from a a little article that he uh, did. Religion says this, I obey, therefore I'm accepted. That's advice. Hey, do a bunch of good stuff. Read your Bible. Uh, serve the poor. Uh, go down on Thanksgiving to help uh, hand out turkeys. You know, do, do whatever it is that's a good thing. And if you do that, then you'll know you're accepted. For uh, church-type people, this means I'll be accepted by God. But even for secular people, they operate by this same principle and say, if I do the things that I say I'm committed to do, then I'll know I'm something. It's a self-acceptance. I obey, therefore I'm accepted. The gospel, on the other hand, says I'm accepted, therefore I obey. I'm accepted by the free gift of God in Jesus Christ. I'm accepted by him. That's why I obey. So it's a totally different motivational structure. One is is motivated by fear. I better do this or else I'm not going to be accepted. The other one is motivated by joy. I'm accepted by God. He loves me in Jesus. Therefore, I do what he tells me to. Here's another, here's another difference. In religion, motivation is based on fear and insecurity. This is what we just said. And the gospel's motivation based on grateful joy. Uh, an interesting sort of example here um, that Tim Keller gives when he talks through this. He's a pastor in New York City that has influenced me quite a bit. Um, he gives the example of, uh, sorry, I've got a cold, so I'm going to work on my tea here while I talk. Is that right? Just hanging out, right? Just having a little conversation. He uh, he makes this interesting point, especially as it relates to parenting, and, it, and it's uh, the, par- the parenting's a real good application because in this passage he talks about I was like a gentle nursing mother, and I was like a father, and so there's a lot here that applies there. And Keller makes an interesting point as it relates to how do we typically teach our children not to lie? What do we typically do? Well, usually, well, if, it, kind of the religious version is don't lie. God will get you, right? Don't lie or something bad will happen to you, right? Sort of this karma type idea, like don't lie or bad stuff, right? That's a motivation based on fear. Uh, The other version is to say, don't lie because we aren't liars in our family. We're not like those bad people who lie, right? What is that? What's that motivation? That's not fear but pride, Right, So typically the way we teach this is, don't be like those people because something bad will happen, or don't be like those people because we're not like those people, right? But here's the thing, why do you lie? Why do you lie? You lie because of fear and because of pride. You're afraid something bad will happen to you, or you lie to protect your reputation. So here's what happens. When we teach our children not to lie that way, we're actually trying to produce a good result by nurturing evil in their heart. You get that? And that is the way, that's, that's just the default mode of, of the human heart. That's, that's religion. That's moralism. And, and, I mean, thank God that there's lots of people in our world, even who don't love the Lord, who are moral. I mean, can you imagine if, if this was a world totally devoid of moral people? It would be horrible. It would be unlivable. But that's not Christianity. That's not the gospel. The gospel says you don't need to lie because God knows everything about you and he's accepted you in Jesus anyway. It's a totally different thing. Here's the third uh, difference between the gospel and religion. Uh, Number three, uh, in religion, I obey God in order to get things from God. But with the gospel, I obey God to get God. God to delight and resemble him, to get more of him. right? This is the idea that most people have of that God is just this kind of giant vending machine in the sky. And if I put in the right dollar bills by the things I do, out will pop a blessing. (laughs) That's religious, that's superstitious. It's not based on the gospel. In the gospel, we obey God to to resemble him, to be more like him, because we love him. Now, I get it, that's hard, because we don't see God Right, and, and so even, even to say well, we have a relationship with God can sometimes be, be difficult. It, it just feels better to sort of pay for it ourselves by our good effort. But that's religion. That's not the gospel. Uh, number four, in religion, uh, my prayer consists largely of petition. God, do this for me. God, I need your help. God, you better bail me out here. And it only heats up when I'm in a time of need. My main purpose in prayer is control of the environment. Get that? Like, when do you pray? Well, when everything in my life collapses. Okay, then that reveals that you're only religious. You're trying to use God to get the circumstances of your life under control. It's that whole vending machine in the sky thing again. But with the gospel, my prayer life consists of generous stretches of praise and adoration. My main purpose is friendship with God. I don't pray to get stuff from God. I pray so that I can know God and, and be known by him in a deeper way. It's a totally different thing. And then finally, uh, religion says this. When I'm living up to my standards, I feel confident. But then I'm prone to be proud and unsympathetic to failing people. When I'm not living up to standards, I feel like a failure. Right? This is, if you're a person that says, I pride myself on being on time right? You're on time. Things start on time. You're always to meetings early. And that is sort of how you define that you're a good person. You cannot help but look down your nose at people that are late. If you pride yourself on that you are hardworking and that you are diligent and that you are a self-made person, then you cannot help but look down your nose at people that you think are lazy. Because your whole identity is based on living up to your standards, if your standard becomes I serve in three ministries in the church and I'm in a community, and if you don't do that, then you're clearly not right with God. That's not true. That's religion. In the gospel, we know that in Christ I'm simultaneously sinful and accepted. Get this. I love this line. I'm so bad he had to die for me like nothing else would do. And I'm so loved that he was glad to die for me. This leads me to deeper and deeper humility and confidence at the same time, neither swaggering nor sniveling. Right? In the gospel, there's a a bold humility that comes. There's a boldness because you know that if God is for you, who can be against you? But there's also humility because you know that the reason God is for you is not because you've lived up to some standards. It's not because you've achieved certain things by your performance. It's because of sheer grace. So, so if you're here today and your problem is with Christians who are arrogant, your problem is with Christians who are hypocritical, your problem is with Christians who are judgmental, here's what I want to tell you. Your problem is not with gospel-centered Christians. Your problem is with religious, moralistic hypocrites. But the gospel, the true message that we're to encourage with, one another with all the time is that God is good and God is gracious to us in Jesus. And that if we have him, he's enough. It changes everything. So practically, what would this look like as we encourage one another? Well, for one thing, it would, it would look like this. We would replace the language that says you should not with the language that says you need not because God is better in this way. So as we encourage one another, I just would so encourage us, as you parent, as you invest in the people in your life, as, as we care for one another as a church, this has got to be our new language. Not you should not, because God will get you. You should not, because that will embarrass you. You should not, because that's wrong. Though even oftentimes, that's true. But but, to, but look at it through a gospel lens that says, you don't need to. So let's give some just real practical examples. Here's one. Religion would say to someone who's constantly angry or has a temper that, you know, flares up from time to time, you should not lose your temper because it's embarrassing to everyone around you, right? That might be how we counsel each other. Don't you know what this makes your, your wife feel like when you just blow up like that? Don't you know what that's doing to your kids? Well, of course. Are you right? Yeah. But that's not a gospel motivation. A gospel motivation would be this. You don't need to lose your temper because God's in control, This didn't surprise him. God loves you. You don't need to. Here's another example. This is relevant for me and for those of you who were at the chili cook-off last night. You should not overeat, right? Overeating, I mean, that's the one thing we don't ever talk about in church. We like to talk about drugs and alcohol and sleeping around and, you know, but we're all kind of fat. You know, at least I am. And, and honestly, I mean, I, I joke around about it just so I don't cry. <laughs> but seriously, I mean, it's something, I, it's something the Lord has, is, I, I need to work on. I need grace there. I invite you to pray for me and to pray for one another. And it, it's, you know, we, we do, as Dale joked last week, we have food at everything. And that's fine. You don't have to eat it, right? I mean, but, but here's, here's, what relig- here's the religious way of dealing with that problem. You shouldn't overeat. Don't you have any self-control? Or, or for me, it would look like pre- you're gonna you're gonna preach to all those people about self-control, yet you don't have any self-control. Anymore. Now is that true? Yeah, that's religious. It's moralistic. It's it's nurturing evil in my heart to try to produce good, which that's sinful. Now the gospel would say you don't need to overeat because God's a better refuge. That's the whole idea of fasting. If you've ever been interested in fasting and what's the idea with fasting, it's the idea of saying God is satisfying enough that even if I don't eat right now, I'll find my satisfaction in him. It's a gospel thing. You don't need to overeat because God's a better refuge than food. Let's give a parenting example. Um, (laughs) This is one, again, from our family. Our uh, little girls like to hit each other. Oftentimes provoked, though uh, one tends to be more of the provoker. Uh, And the religious way of parenting, and I'm not going to ask for a show of hands of who else has done this. Don't hit your sister. We don't do that. Right? Now, should you hit your sister? No. Do we want to be a family that's marked by how we hit people? No. But again, this is a... Why... Why does one of my daughters hit the other one when provoked? Because of pride that says, I don't deserve to be treated that way. And so if I nurture pride in their hearts in order to get a good result, that's, that's sin. So here would be a gospel way to do it. And I don't know that they're going to get this all the time, but I think the continual repetition of this way of thinking, I I, I trust that it will bear fruit, is you don't need to hit your sister because God has put me in your life to protect you. When she hits you, I'm, I'm here to protect you. You don't need to hit back. When something happens that doesn't go your way, I'm here to protect you. I'm here for you. I love you. God has given me to you. You don't need to do that. I just would challenge you to try to rethink and even just be aware of where are the places where I offer advice that's true, but it's actually based on moralism, it's based on pride, it's based on fear as a motivation, rather than based on the good news of Jesus. So this is the message that Paul had, is this gospel, this news, not advice. And it's interesting that he repeats that word four times. Four times he talks about the gospel in this text. So a personal ministry for us and in our parenting needs to have a pure message. It also needs to have a pure motive. A pure motive. So that was pure message, pure motive as well. There's a lot of different things in here that show us the motive that Paul had. uh, Specifically some motive that he didn't have. So if you were to look at verse 3, he says, For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity, or any attempt to deceive, but just as we've been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God, who tests our hearts. See, this is where we've seen people in ministry go bad. This is where we've seen uh, things in churches go bad, as we, we've seen people who have had bad motives. They've, they've done something in order to be seen by others, or they've done something to become rich, or to deceive people. We don't need to go through examples in culture of of pastors and of churches and of televangelists that have done these things, right? And so we inherently have this skepticism to all of it, and it's because of bad motives. So if we're to care for one another, if you're to uh, parent in a way that is godly and gospel-centered, if we're to build into one another's lives, our motives have to be right. He says also in verse 6, here's another place of motivation. Nor did we seek glory from people. Our goal wasn't glory from people. Our our goal was not to be well-liked. But we did it, verse 4, to please God. Here's another motive is love found in verse 8. So being affectionately desirous of you. We were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God but also our own selves because you had become very dear to us. Why would you invest in someone's life? Is it because it will advance you? Is it, is it transactional? Like I'll do this for them and then they will reward me by doing this in return? Or is it a servant kind of investment that says I will do this, I will bless them expecting that I get nothing in return and happy with it? What motivates you? For Paul, it wasn't, it wasn't money. It wasn't people's approval. It was, he was approved by God, verse 4, so he sought to please God. He had this, this boldness to please the Lord, and he had this love that came from being loved by God. It's amazing. We said last week, Paul had been with the Thessalonians for about three to five weeks. It wasn't long. I mean, this wasn't a long trip. And yet he still says in verse 8, being affectionately desirous of you, you had become very dear to us. You know, I, don't, I, I haven't known them long enough. I haven't cared about them long enough. Well, Paul knew them for three or f- four weeks. And he loved them. He was motivated by love. So he had a pure message, he had a pure motive, but also then a pure method. A pure method. Uh, we see his method uh, in verse 7. He says, we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. Isn't that an interesting analogy? We don't need to break that down probably uh, more than most of you are already just aware of what that means. A nursing mom is caring and is loving and is tender. The word Paul uses there in verse 7, we were gentle among you. There's a gentleness that comes with caring for people. Notice though there's also a firmness. Look at verse 11. For you know how like a father with his children we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God. There's gentleness, and there's firmness. This is actually also what Jesus was like in his ministry. In in John chapter 1, it says that Jesus came full of grace and truth. One of my favorite examples of that is in John, uh, I think it's chapter 2, where Jesus turns water into wine just to make a party better. He brings the best wine, so to speak. Grace. Grace. But then in the very next thing, he's, he's incensed at the, at the hypocrisy and the, and the way that people are trying to use the temple uh, stuff to, to make money. And so he goes in and he turns over the tables and he makes a whip of cords and he's angry. He's tough. He's tough and tender. Truth and grace. Firm and gentle. That's the approach here. And most of us will err in one direction or the other, right? If we talk again about parenting, uh, generally in most homes, there's a gentle parent, there's a firm parent, and it isn't always that the gentle one is mom, right? Oftentimes, dad, you know, he wants to come home and be the hero, so he's the gentle one, and he's not firm, and he abdicates his responsibility. He wants to be the play buddy, but this is saying that the, the, the method, that we're to use as we parent, the method that we're to use as we uh, invest in the people in our community and invest in our family is a method of gentleness and yet firmness. Notice another piece of the method is just the personal holiness that he had in verse 10. He says, you are witnesses in God also how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. In other words, if you're gonna have this great message about the goodness of God, But your life is not holy and righteous and blameless. It's going to undercut everything you're saying, right? If you talk to youth pastors, they will say that one of the major reasons that children grow up in the church and then walk away and never see it again is not just because of youth ministries, though that's part of it, but it's often because they lived in a home for 18 years where the parents said one thing another. Jesus is my treasure for two hours a week on Sunday morning and other stuff gets all my attention the rest. If that's that's your method of parenting, you're going to produce someone who sees Christianity, sees the gospel as hypocrisy. Our our lives have to be holy and righteous and blameless. And again, why? Why? Because we love the Lord. He says uh, specifically how, how he exhorted them. Uh, we exhorted, we encouraged, we charged you. That means we, we, sometimes we plead with you, like we begged you to, to, to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Sometimes when you struggled, we encouraged you, we cheered you up, we consoled you. Other times we charged you, we urged you to do this. And notice verse 12, it says, we did this to each one of you. Each one of you. So this isn't saying, I exhorted and encouraged and charged you as a crowd like I am doing right now to you. This is saying, I was able to get, and our team was able to get in such a way that we knew each of you. Now the way we do that here at our church is we have communities and we have ministry teams. Because we know, as I've already said, that I can't get to know each person in the way that that Paul's describing here. Neither can all of our pastors or all of our elders. For sure, there's a portion of you that we do have that kind of relationship. But we've entrusted and we've trained and we've developed other people to serve in that role. If you're here right now and you're a community leader, Paul is very much describing the kind of ministry that you're to have. If you're here and you go, gosh, I like this way of thinking about ministry. One of the things that's in your program today is we're looking for a few folks to be developed and to be trained so that we can multiply our communities this spring. But all across the board, this is to be our method, a method of love, a method of of graciousness and gentleness but firmness, a method of pleading and cheering up and urging, doing whatever it takes to encourage us to walk in a manner worthy of God, as it says in verse 12. Is your method consistent with your message? Or does your method obscure even taint your message? My favorite example of this was when I was in college. Some of you have heard this story. We had a guy on our campus at University of Illinois called Preacher Dan. Every, I think every campus has to have one of these, I think. But Preacher Dan was the, you know, the, the quad preacher. He was out there where all the students would be and he would preach. And Preacher Dan was like a broken clock. You know, a broken clock is right twice a day. And even Preacher Dan was right twice a day. So, I mean, occasionally you'd listen to him preaching, oh, yeah, I agree with that. And then the most of the time he would you know, yell at sorority girls whose skirts he thought were too short or whatever, and, you know, yell at them and whatever. And so this one day I come out of class, and it's noon, and so there's the most people on, on the campus. And Preacher Dan is out there. He's ranting and raving and doing his thing, and it always kind of drew a crowd, most people just to mock him. Um, and out of that comes this guy in a tie-dye shirt, Who announces, now introducing the first gay quad preacher. This is a student. Well, the crowd, you know, the crowd gets bigger. More people... You know, tune it. What? What in the world is going on? And this this young man, this college student in the tie dye shirt, starts just ranting and raving about how Christians are so mean, and how Christians are especially mean to homosexual community, and on and on and on. And he's going, "Is this love?" And and, and this is just so interesting because Dan is still ranting and raving at the at the same time. So they're like, they're almost like back to back, like turning like if you had like if it was a movie that you know the camera would like just go around and you would just see them all turning and and the crowd is heating up and and the guy's going is this love is this love and preacher dan wheels around and i'm not kidding you here's what he did i do love you you miserable wretch (laughs) and the crowd did what you just did right i mean uproarious laughter and uh, even though i don't think preacher dan's message on the whole was worth much Whatever was good about it, he totally undermined it by his method. I'm not against street preaching. I'm not against public preaching. But the the way he communicated didn't communicate, I love you, even though that's what his words said. communicated something else. Now, that's an extreme example. But do we communicate by the way we interact with each other that we care? Let's just get get practical. Someone... Someone share, you're at your community on any given week. Someone shares a need. Oh, man, I'm so sorry. Breaks my heart. How many of you follow that up with a phone call or an email? Hey, how's that going? I'm praying for you. One of the things I, I get convicted about is just how fast I walk. I walk around in a way that says I'm busy. I don't have time for anyone. It's a method that's inconsistent with this kind of ministry. Do we really care about each other? Or do we just want to look like we care about each other? Right, do you really, and this, some of you are going to go, how dare you even mention this? Do you really love your kids? Or do you just want them to not embarrass you in public, but mostly let you live a selfish life and do what you want? Or are you willing to do the hard work of of not just discipline in a religious way, but helping them see and understand the gospel? Are you willing to do the hard work of being consistent every time and demonstrating through your actions that you love them and that their well-being is more important even than their happiness? That's love. I think oftentimes, I just want to look loving want to feel like I'm not one of those mean people. Pride, fear, arrogance. Do we really mean it? Well, Paul did how? Well, because Paul had been changed by the gospel. He had had Jesus Christ demonstrate through his death on the cross that he was serving him, that he was loving him, that he was giving Paul what he needed, even though it wasn't what Paul wanted, as Paul went to go kill and persecute Christians. But he changed his life in a radical way. He reoriented his whole motivational structure. And he was different. So i got three questions for us to ask ourselves here um, as it relates to this kind of ministry. Uh, Number one, do I encourage people with the gospel or with moralism? What's your message? Be a good person? Or Jesus is crazy about you? And he proved it by dying on the cross and rising again. Here's the second question. Why do I want to be used in this person's life? Is it for my own credit? Is it for my own glory? Is it so that people go, oh man, they're so wonderful? Is it for my reputation or is it to please the Lord, to honor him? Number three, how faithfully do I represent Jesus in my approach? Both grace and truth. Randy Alcorn says that we're like golden retrievers that try to pick up two tennis balls one, one tennis ball is grace and the other one is truth, right? And so you, you latch on to the grace, and as soon as you try to be truthful, the grace one drops out of the mouth. That kind of thing. That's how we are. But does our ministry, do I faithfully represent Jesus, grace and truth in my approach? This is what investing in someone's life looks like. This is what ministry is about. Do we need people to serve in the nursery? Yes. Do we need people to mentor students? Yes. Do we need people to help out with, with being ushers and greeters and handing out pens and welcoming people to the door? Yes. Is that part of ministry? Yes. But if all those jobs and roles happen without this, joyfully and prayerfully speaking the gospel, motivated by a love for God in a way that is gracious. And truthful. If that doesn't happen, then we're just throwing an event every week. Here's the good news I don't think that's the only thing that happens. But I do know that all of us are busy, all of us have stuff to do, and the default mode is to go away from that and to just punch the time card. Do what we have to do, minimum requirements, just to maintain an appearance. Scripture calls us to more than that. Can you imagine what would happen if we, if we embraced that? If our parenting was filled with gospel, gracious words? Can you imagine how this would impact the relationships of the people you care about the most? If over time they saw in you that you loved them and that you cared for them, that even though you weren't going to go along with everything they wanted to do, there was no doubt in their mind that you cared for them because of how you served them. And how you did it at your own expense, not because it got you anything. Can you imagine that? That that's how this church changed the world. We saw in chapter one that the word of their faith, hope, and love had spread all over the world. How did that happen? Because there was this kind of ministry invested in it. Let's pray. Lord, we, uh, we thank you so much for Jesus and for how he uh, gives us a pure message, how he changes our motives from being religious and moralistic to being um, motivated by grace. God, we thank you for the method that he used, that he was full of grace and truth. And we pray that in your um, goodness and grace, you would allow us to be the same way. As we parent, as we manage people in the workplace, as we uh, seek to invest in our friends and neighbors and relatives. God, we uh, we want to be used by you for your glory and your good so that at the end of time there would be thousands more people filled with faith, hope, and love in the Savior. We pray in his name. Amen. Amen.
0: Amen. Well, you've-